Who can tell me the sermon series that we were engaged in when we were hit by the virus and the shutdowns? Seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? It was in January that we launched a series of studies in the book of Isaiah. We were looking at the themes that Isaiah goes back to over and over again. And I was on the brink of wrapping that up when, well, things got delayed and then Easter hit. And I decided back then that I would leave the final message from our series on Isaiah for the first Sunday that we gathered back again after the virus shutdowns. Remember when we expected that to be, you know, two or three weeks or so off for missing service? Well, here we are in the fall, a much smaller gathering of believers, but the work goes on. And my, my hope and my plan is to begin on September 13, a series of messages on the book of Acts that I've been working on for some time. But I still have one sermon on Isaiah which never got delivered. So that's where we're gonna to go today, to our concluding theme from Isaiah, and that theme is simply salvation. We're gonna be looking at what the Savior is, or who the Savior is, I should say, at what He saves us from, at what the salvation cost, and what the salvation is unto, and then finally, at a couple of fitting applications. Now, we begin by looking at a lot of scripture that sufficiently demonstrates our first point, which is that the Savior is God. Say that with me. The Savior is God. Now, you could turn that around and it would be equally true. God is the Savior. Isaiah 12 is a very short chapter and contains as much of today's sermon as any portion of the prophetic book. Here in the verse, verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 12, we read this, Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. Twice in those verses, we read that God not only brings us salvation, it actually reminds us that God is our salvation. A lot of scripture today. Isaiah 25, 9, it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. So according to this, who is our Savior? Who is the Savior? Clearly, it is God. Look at some more of these. Chapter 33, verse 22, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Chapter 43, verse 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I, verse 11, I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Now, clear enough, if we're going to have a Savior, if we're going to give that title to someone, to whom do we give it? What must be true of that Savior to fit the Word of God in Isaiah? <laughs> well, simply put, that Savior would have to be God. Now, now, who is the one to whom we Christians typically give the title of Savior? When you think of your Savior, who comes to mind? What is His name? Clearly, the answer to that is Jesus is the Savior. The angel told the shepherds, Today in the city of David has been born to you a Savior. A what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. But according to Isaiah, there is no one who is a Savior except for God Himself. So how do we bring these things together? How can they be harmonized? Only through the orthodox doctrine of the deity 
of Jesus Christ. We look for salvation to the person of Jesus, and in looking to Jesus, we are also looking to God. For Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And in John 10, I and the Father are one. Now, if you were to ask me, Dan, who is your Savior? My answer would be, Jesus is my Savior. Now, I could say, God is my Savior, but I prefer to use Jesus to be more specific, lest anyone think of some other God than the biblical God, for there are all kinds of things the people that people look to for their salvation. And some of those things, they do give the title of God. In Isaiah 45, verse 20, it says, Gather yourselves together and come, draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God? And listen to this. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There is no other. He is the Savior. But oh my, don't we look about trying to find another one, hoping to find another one. Can't we get another Savior in here? Can't we get some options? Why would somebody not be satisfied with God as Savior? Well, I would suggest it's because having God as Savior rather obligates us to Him, and we don't want to be obligated to God. Having God as Savior requires humility humbling ourselves, and we don't want to humble ourselves. So we look to other things for salvation. We look to drugs, we look to doctors, we look to government, we look to food. Just browse to a bookstore, just look at your television options, and you'll see a long list of various saviors vying for your attention, for your devotion. And when you do, remember the words of Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 11, where the Lord says, I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Well, if God is the Savior, what is it that He saves us from? And understand that there are a lot of things you could be saved from. You could be saved from your political enemies, your military enemies, your natural devastations. You could be saved from sickness or from injury. You could be saved from addictions and neuroses. But what is it that God, our Savior, is concerned to save us from? If you go to Isaiah 12 again, see this. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were you were angry with me. Your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. The implication of that verse, is it what it seems? It seems to indicate that God saves us from Himself. Ask yourself this. Do you think it accurate to say that God saves us from Himself? If you're unsure, don't worry, because I am with you there. But, but there is surely some truth to that, because God is not only the Savior, He also is the judge and the executioner. And in fact, God's salvation is very much a salvation from His own wrath. And why would He be angry? Well, the answer to that rhymes with ten. Sin, that, that's it. God is angry because of our sin. The Bible says that wrath is coming because of sin. Well, let's bring in some other passages here, Isaiah 1. Verse 18, you may know, come and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool. God is promising salvation here, and clearly it is salvation from what? From guilt, and presumably from 
the judgment that comes against that guilt and against that sin. Again, we come to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Again, the message about God's kindness addresses a certain problem, and it's not a political problem or a medical problem. It's a moral problem. It is, it is a guilt problem. Isaiah 43, 25 I, even I, am the one who wipes away your, or wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will remember, or not remember, your sins. Chapter 44, verse 22, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist. Listen, my friend, when you look for a Savior, you, you need to know what He is saving you from. And the Savior, who is the Lord, makes it very plain that he goes after the big one. He tackles the big one, the greatest and the most fundamental human problem of all, which is sin. And of course, when Jesus shows up, what was he all about? You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. James Ryle tells of the young maiden who encounters a frog in the woods, and the frog speaks to her and says, I am not really a frog. I am really a handsome young prince. Put under a spell, kiss me, and the curse will be lifted. In gratitude, I will marry you and share with you all the wealth of my kingdom. The young maiden picked up the frog, didn't kiss it. She stuck it in her pocket and began walking home. Well, the frog jumped and squirmed so much, she finally pulled him out of her pocket. And when he spoke again, he said, Don't you understand? I am not really a frog. I am really a handsome young prince. Put under a curse, kiss me, and the curse will be lifted. In gratitude, I will marry you and share with you all the wealth of my kingdom. And the maiden said, yeah, yeah, I heard you the first time. It's just I would rather have a talking frog. The lesson of that story is that folks may not be as interested in what you are trying to sell. And one thing that is very clear is that lots of people in our day, in our culture, who've been taught that there are no absolute rights and wrongs, that going your own way and doing your own thing is really wonderful. It's not the sin that God declares it to be. These people have no real interest in a Savior from sin. The temptation becomes for us who are preachers to market God's salvation differently. One church may promote Jesus as a way to a fulfilling life or something of that nature. Uh, another church may promote Jesus as one who can give you purpose or one who can fill you with a sense of being loved or the one who can make you a success in school or in sports or in relationships. But the salvation of which we read in God's book, this book, is a salvation from sin. And if people don't have an interest in it, then part of our work as evangelists is to expose their need, not change our message. When we want to present Jesus as the all-purpose problem solver, we end up representing him or representing him as the model businessman or the great psychologist or the ultimate motivator. We preach that his provision includes self-esteem and direction and purpose and counsel for living and that stuff may be true in its own way but primarily what Jesus has come to give us clearly. What his role as sin buster requires him to give us is righteousness. Righteousness. Let's go there for a minute. Seems to me like more people are interested in talking frogs, but the Bible says that this is our greatest need and the solution to our greatest problem. Isaiah 61 and verse 
10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So that passage teaches us what the salvation of God consists of. You find in this verse two parallel terms. You have a garment of salvation and a robe of what? Righteousness. We are saved by the gift of righteousness. Reformation theology teaches us that when we believe in Jesus, we are joined to Him, and His righteousness becomes ours so that in Him we are not just morally cleaned up of sin. We are before God as positive law keepers. We are declared just by God on the basis of Christ's imputed perfection. This is what the term justification means. This is our status in the Lord Jesus. So Isaiah chapter 44 verse 24 says, Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Verse 25, In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. So I don't know how you react to all of this. You may be like the girl who was offered a kingdom but really wanted a talking frog. You may have no interest in a salvation from sin, but this is what God calls the greatest need of your life. Without it, without it you have nothing because you're still in your sins. You're under the wrath of God and without hope except for what we read here. The hope of the gospel according to Isaiah, the hope of a God who will come to us and triumphantly deal with our sin problem. The problem is sin, and God is the Savior. Now we want to move on to consider the cost of this salvation. You know, sometimes when you deal with salespeople, it can be very difficult even get, to get told the cost of what they are marketing. Ever had that experience? And when they do tell you, they often leave something out. You get offered something that's free, but you have to just pay $9.90 and shipping and handling, something like that. Or maybe you think you want to purchase a timeshare property, and after the tour, after the tour and the 80-minute sales pitch, you are talked into it. And then they mention the annual maintenance fee of $997 a year. That's not something I want sprung on me at the end of the sales pitch. Tell me right up front. And so I want to know the cost of this salvation of which Isaiah speaks. And there are two parts to that answer about the cost. The first part is that it is free. It is free for you. It is free for you. Some of you know Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The free gift? Can the, the greatest treasure in the world really be given away? Well, Paul certainly taught that in the first century, but over 700 years earlier, Isaiah taught that same gospel of free grace for sinners. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Well, I love that. And aren't the scriptures glorious? Verse 2 there bemoans the tendency of foolish sinners to pay mightily, to sacrifice greatly for saviors that do not pay, that cannot satisfy, while all the while there is a salvation smorgasbord set out for us in the house of the Lord. There is water pure and refreshing. There is food aplenty. There is wine and milk, and it is not something you pay for. It's not something you work for. It is given. With this promise of God before us, 
Don't you see that spiritual thirst, it's only a choice. It's not a predicament. In God, your needs can be met, and all you need to do is ask. Free grace. Free grace. In my studies this week, I ran across this old hymn by Isaac Watts, probably the greatest poet the church has ever produced. Listen to these words. Lo, all ye hungry, starving souls that feed upon the wind and vainly strive with earthly toys to fill an empty mind. Ho, ye that pant for living streams and pine away and die. Here you may quench your raging thirst with springs that never dry. Rivers of love and mercy here in a rich ocean join. Salvation in abundance flows like floods of milk and wine. Ye perishing and naked poor who work with mighty pain to weave a garment of your own that will not hide your sin. Come naked and adorn your souls in robes prepared by God, wrought by the labors of His Son, and died in His own blood. He was thinking of Isaiah 55 and verse 1 when he wrote that for sure. Every one of us have attended, who have attended this banquet, not only testify to you, but plead with you to come and to join us at the table of the Lord. It is sweet, it is satisfying, and it really truly is free. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It is available for the humility of the asking. Well, I said there were two parts to the answer to our question. The question about the cost of our salvation. The first part is that the salvation is free to you. To you it is, but there is one who did have to pay. For you to have eternal joy, the Son of God had to endure temporarily eternal suffering. This suffering was eternal because Jesus himself is eternal, and the wrath poured out upon him at Calvary, that's eternal as well. But wait a second, how, how do we get this stuff about Jesus paying for our salvation from an Old Testament book like Isaiah? Isn't that simply restricted to the teaching of Paul? No, no, no. We simply turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Read with me again from this magnificent chapter starting at verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The iniquity of us all fell on him. That is why he was stricken and afflicted and pierced and crushed. He was paying the price for our salvation, the price of our sin, which explains how for us this salvation can be free. It is because Christ paid the bill. When he hung on the cross at Calvary, he spoke that great word, tetelestai. It is finished is how it is translated, but that term tetelestai was commonly used on bills of lading to indicate that a debt was paid and the transaction was complete and finished. So realize that God doesn't just offer you pardon and eternal life and a relationship of love with Him because He's a nice guy. He does it because Christ's sufferings purchase for you all of these things. Isaiah 53 and verse 10, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offer. Much of our history as a nation has taught us that we can be free only because many of our countrymen gave their life in the fight against oppression. And the Bible tells us that salvation is free only because the Christ died to make it so. 
And now I, I want to tell you what Isaiah says about the end result of God's saving work and God's saving suffering, Christ's saving suffering. He says at the end of it all is joy. Your, God, your joy, God's joy, joy all around. So back to where we started, Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, make them remember that His name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for He has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy. And Isaiah, he's no cheerleader trying to artificially pump up a crowd. He gives us reason to shout for joy. It is the salvation of God. Listen to these reasons to rejoice. Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. So joy is the end and the purpose of our salvation. We're exhorted, therefore, to live in that joy. Chapter 44, 23, Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Can I give you one more? And make this your declaration today. Chapter 61, verse 10, I will rejoice greatly, in the Lord, my soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with robes, well, with a robe of righteousness. Isaiah said that we are created by God for gladness. Dear friend, there is a joy in the salvation of Jesus that is waiting to be discovered. Learn it. Live it. Sometimes I think we're like a child for whom a father has sacrificed mightily in order to give that child a special gift. And then imagine that child not enjoying the gift, instead growing sullen with thoughts of the father's great sacrifice. That's not what the father wants, is it? He wants the child laughing and shouting and delighting in what he has given. That's the reward. And the reward for Christ is found in your joy and in my joy. It was an awful price he paid, that's for sure. But it was paid so that we could rejoice in free and abundant grace. We are saved unto joy. Well, now I told you I have two applications today, and I, I really didn't think much about this because Isaiah supplies us with the applications. He told us two things to do with this whole message of God's salvation. Our first one is this. Tell it to others. Announce it to all that you can. Chapter 52, verse 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who pronounces, announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. God pronounces a blessing here on those who make a point of announcing the good word of peace, the happy message, the great news of salvation. Being a witness, it is a sweet privilege. It can be done through a personal word or through a book or a CD. It can happen through an invitation to church or youth group. Whatever door you find sitting even partially open, try to walk through it with an unchurched person. God has placed you in that position 
of being a witness for him. And finally, I speak to you here. Uh, those of you who are wondering, why on earth we make so much of this salvation? And all I can say is what the prophet says. Come and see for yourself. Come and taste. When you seek satisfaction in your foods or in your intoxicants or in your indulgences, you are displaying a hunger, but you are seeking to fill it in all the wrong ways, all the wrong places, and you are only addressing the symptoms. The real, the root, the central problem in your life, my friend, it is your sin and it is your guilt. And these are the things that must be addressed by that which you seek to find satisfaction in. God stands ready to clean all that up as soon as you tell Him you are ready. And so we finish today and our series on Isaiah with the invitation of the prophet to you. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and He will have compassion on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Amen.